When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. I am very excited to be back. It has been a bit of a break. A lot of things have happened to Laurel and I. Laurel, have you ever heard that Grateful Dead song? And it has the line, what a long, strange trip it's been. I don't know if I've heard that Grateful Dead song, but indeed, what a, what a long, long, strange trip it's been. That, I'm sorry, I can't sing. That is so true. And I shouldn't because my lungs have not fully recovered from having had COVID-19. Yeah. Um, wow. So a lot of crazy stuff has happened. One, we apologize, Midnight Myth listeners, for kind of not putting out our final Harry Potter installment. So we wanted to do an episode today. We wanted to, A, tell you everything that's happened with us, and B, conclude the Harry Potter. As so best we can, yeah. It'll start with, I'll start with me. The day after Christmas, I woke up with a cough, fever, and chills. Uh, the next day, I was able to get a COVID test, and it turned out I was positive with COVID-19. I didn't feel all that terrible, and I still have no idea how I got it. And then about two days later, I felt like I got hit by a Mack truck. I was the sickest I have ever been in my entire life. Um, officially was diagnosed with a moderate case of COVID. Um, and as we all know, COVID can get quite severe and life-threatening. So as sick as I was, I never got to that point. I'll tell you, I was close. Yeah, I ended up infecting my parents who came and visited with us on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I infected my neighbor and Wheel of Cock co-podcast Steve because a few days before Christmas we had a beer and just we're talking about, of all things, the Wheel of Cock. And I ended up infecting my nine-month pregnant wife, Laurel, and podcast co-host. Yeah, yeah. So a couple days later, I got a test. Fortunately, I remained pretty much asymptomatic the entire time. The only thing that happened to me was I lost taste and smell um, after I had the baby. 
um, just for a few days and I was able to get it back. And I'm really grateful for that because uh, some people it lasts a really long time. Uh, so we isolated from each other for like a week and a half, uh, hoping that we wouldn't either infect me before we knew I was positive or, uh, you know, give me any more of the virus so that I would become symptomatic. And fortunately, I stayed fairly healthy. Um, and, uh, and I had a baby, <laughs> um, on January 3rd, we had our son, Arthur, um, and it was quite an experience, um, because unfortunately due to our diagnoses, we were not able to be together for the birth. Um, and I'm still very emotional about it. And I thank you all for listening through, um, the kind of bearing of our emotions, but we are so, so fortunate to have a healthy and beautiful baby boy who tested negative for COVID-19. We are now both out of our, uh, our mandated isolation. We are both healthy. Derek is recovering extraordinarily well. Uh, and we're so happy to be together and be a family. And we, we thank you all for your kind of patience as we got this episode out. We're still figuring out what the future of the podcast is going to be with a third wheel in the room. Uh, and I mean, literally in the room right now, he's attached to me in a baby carrier that has some little Deathly Hallows and Harry Potter symbols on it. So, uh, if you hear any tiny monster noises, tiny basilisk noises during the podcast, it's because he might wake up. Yep. And I think you might've caught some, I don't know if that got caught on the mic just or not. Just a little bit of cooing. Yeah, just a little bit. So we have no idea how this is going to go today. We have no idea how long this episode's going to be, and we're not exactly sure um, how frequently we're going to be doing podcast episodes, but we're going to be doing them as often as we can, and we're going to be doing them as frequently as we can. And over time, we plan to get back to every single week. We don't know if that's realistic. Yeah, we just ask that you bear with us as we figure out our new normal. And officially, of all the folks that I know that I infected with COVID, I got the worst of it. My parents are okay. Steve never had a single symptom, even though he tested positive. Um, both of my parents had very, very mild cases. They just felt like they had a slight cold. That's all they got. And um, I did have, you know, one other person that I work with who is a great friend and personal mentor who ended up in the ICU and was very close to passing away, who is thankfully on the road to a full recovery. All this to say, the pandemic is very real. 4,000 Americans are dying a day at this point. And even if you practice the best social distancing that you can do and you wear a mask, it's still possible that this can affect you. And please, everybody... Do everything you can to help spread this disease. I, help stop the spread. <laughs> or, yes, pardon me. Help stop the spread of the disease. Yes, thank you. Very important correction. It's um, it's really bad. You might hear at some point in times my breath might give out a little bit on me because I still feel like I'm operating with only one and a half lungs as opposed to two full lungs. And um, yeah, it's it's real. It really impacted us, and we want everyone listening to stay safe. That being stated, that's what's up with us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for giving us a few weeks off. And honestly, when people found out I was sick on social media. Oh, just an outpouring of love. It was very touching. Yeah. And then the outpouring of love for the birth of our son, Arthur Roland. 
um, was just so amazing. And thank you to everyone who reached out on whatever platform or channel, which is to say, you know how to reach us. But, you know, before we get into the show, do the thing, Laurel. Oh, yeah, the thing. I'm not posting a lot on social media these days because I uh, don't have a whole lot of free hands or free time. But we are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we also have a website, MidnightMyth.com, where you can learn more. I've paused our Patreon contributions, our pledges for the month of January, uh, just because we weren't going to be putting out a whole lot of episodes. But if you do want to support us for a low monthly donation, you can sign up on Patreon. Uh, and we also have a merch store, and you can find all of that at MidnightMyth.com. Uh, and that's about about my thing right now. You can absolutely leave us a five-star rating or a review if you want to help us get out there and help more people find the pod as we get back to a normal schedule. Um, and that is super appreciated and makes us feel amazing. And this is our eighth and final episode on the Harry Potter cinematic franchise. We're going to cover Deathly Hallows Part 2. It goes without saying, if you've listened to all the other episodes up until this point, which I hope you have, that Derek and Laurel, we, the Midnight Myth, fully support trans rights and believe that trans rights are human rights. And any of the Patreon that we collected during the month of December, we gave... November and December. Oh, yeah. pardon me. November and December. We uh, Who did we donate to again? Refresh to my the Transgender Law Center, supporting the trans agenda for liberation. Thank you. And... Um, Anyway, on with the show. Yeah. Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows Part 2. Let's start with the briefest of brief recaps. Take it away. And it might be briefer than normal. I mean, the movie takes place right after the events of the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, the death of Dobby, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione come up with a scheme to infiltrate Gringotts Bank with the help of the goblin Griphook that they rescued so that they can see if Bellatrix Lestrange's vault has one of the Horcruxes, and they will exchange the sort of Gryffindor to Griphook for his help. The scheme works, however, at a cost. Griphook double-crosses them, and they have to escape without the sort of Gryffindor on a dragon. And while they're jumping off of the dragon with the new Horcrux, Harry Potter has a vision of Ravenclaw House and Hogwarts, realizing that he has to return to Hogwarts, and the final Horcrux has something to do with, I'm sorry, the second to last Horcrux has something to do with Ravenclaw. He ends up with the help of Dumbledore's brother, Abathorth, sneaking into the castle, and that is the rest of the movie. Harry has to go see the ghost of Ravenclaw, of, Ravenclaw, of Ravenclaw Tower um, to end up finding that the diadem of Ravenclaw in the Room of Requirement is a Horcrux. Harry also learns that the Snake Nagini is the last Horcrux, Ron and Hermione end up kissing after getting a basilisk fang from the Chamber of Secrets and destroying the Hufflepuff cup. And a battle ensues. Voldemort and his minions try to take the castle by force. At first, a really great defense is mounted, but at the end of the day, Voldemort, Voldemort's forces are too great and too strong. Pardon me, my throat got a little grag... You know, gravelly, gravelly there. <laughs> hey, I'm still recovering from COVID. Yeah, you're doing great. And um, he calls his forces back, calling out Harry Potter, saying that he should come to the Forbidden Forest and confront Harry Potter himself. This is when Harry Potter goes to the boathouse and finds that Voldemort murders Severus Snape so that he can take full possession and ownership over the Elder Wand, the most powerful wand in the world. Harry Potter takes a few of Severus Snape's tears 
using using the pensive in Severus Snape's once Dumbledore's office, he ends up going into Snape's memories, learning that Severus Snape was in love with Lily Potter this whole time and was operating under Dumbledore's orders as a triple agent spying on Dumbledore and doing everything in his power to protecting Harry Potter. This is also where we learn that part of Voldemort's soul rebounded on the killing curse on the day that Voldemort killed Harry's parents and lives in Harry. And Harry must be killed by Dumbledore in order to kill this piece of his soul because he was a Holcrux Voldemort never intended to make. Harry Potter then, kissing the snitch that says, I open at the close, realizes that inside is the resurrection stone, and on his way to the forest, he sees Professor Lupin, who died in the battle, Sirius Black, and his parents, who all can comfort him as he walks to his own death. Voldemort then, using the killing curse, kills Harry Potter, and Harry Potter's soul is transported to King's Cross Station, just only cleaner and a little lighter, <laughs> where he has a conversation with Dumbledore, and Dumbledore gives him the choice to either go back to his body or he can move on to the afterlife now that the piece of Voldemort's soul is dead. Harry Potter chooses to go back and is snuck into the castle by none other than Voldemort. When Harry Potter is revived from the killing curse fails in the forest, Draco Malfoy's mother comes and says, Harry Potter, are you still, is my son still alive? And Harry Potter lightly nods his head. She pretends that Harry Potter is dead and they carry his body back into Voldemort or back into the castle where Voldemort confronts everyone and says, now is the time to declare yourself for Voldemort. And now is the time to put their faith in Voldemort as Harry Potter is dead. This leaves Neville to pick up the sorting hat give a rousing speech, and draw the sword of Gryffindor from the hat. Harry Potter then jumps out of Hagrid's arms, and the final battle between Harry Potter and Voldemort ensues, in which Harry Potter tells Voldemort that the Elder Wand actually belongs to Harry Potter, and it will fail Voldemort. Meanwhile, Neville takes the sword of Gryffindor and kills the snake Nagini, Voldemort tries one last killing curse on Harry Potter that rebounds and kills Voldemort, and the battle is over, our heroes win. During this, we see all of the fallen, all of the lost, and we see that Harry Potter destroys the Elder Wand and throws it over the bridge, giving up absolute power and giving up having now all three Deathly Hallows. At the very end of the movie, the epilogue, is Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny with their children at King's Cross Station on platform nine and three quarters, getting on to the train and going to Hogwarts for their first year. All was well. Wonderful recap. Uh, it, was, a, it was a struggle to get through because my lungs stink. Your breath, yeah. yeah. But you did great. And there's so, so much that happens. But what a battle, right? It it It's incredible to watch... Um, that like two thirds of this movie is the battle of Hogwarts, but it always feels like something new is happening in the story. It's not just combat. It's not just quiet scenes. It hits this incredible balance between the peaceful, uh, slowed down moments, uh, and the moments of intense, intense suspense when we don't know what's going to happen to our characters. Uh, it's yeah, it's pretty extraordinary and a tough thing to recap, but you did very well. 
One of the things that I love the most about the movie is how it zooms in and out from the macro to the micro. A big battle scene with wizards who can fly, summon death from wands. There's giant spiders. There's literal giants. There's an army of golems summoned by Professor McGonagall to defend the castle. It has these huge, amazing moments, but then it has Luna confronting Harry, telling him that he's got to go to Ravenclaw Tower. It has Snape and Harry on Snape's deathbed capturing the tears. It shows Ron and Hermione embracing and finally admitting that they're in love with each other after killing a Holcrux. And lastly, you know, it has Harry choosing to save Draco Malfoy's life in the room of requirement. Going back when it's on fire, he could have easily left him there to die. There's a war going on. No one would have known the wiser. And it has these huge, epic, amazing moments countered with these small, intimate, quiet moments. And it's one of the, I think, the greatest strengths if two-thirds of your movie is going to be a battle, it's very easy to get lost in the spectacle. It's very easy to get lost in the pace. It's very easy to kind of not know what's going on. And this movie takes great care in balancing uh, the small intimate moments with the big macro moments. And I think that's why it's so successful of a movie. It's one of my favorites of the franchise. I don't think it's the best of the franchise, but it might be the one I enjoy rewatching the most. And I really think that's why for me. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's really the greatest strength of the movie. And, you know, we usually start these episodes with, does this movie hold up? And we're already kind of answering that question. But for me, like the, the reason this movie, the reason that the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes, is that, oh my God, what a way to stick the landing. This was before everybody started splitting their movies into, you know, multiple installments for one book. And this one, it was really necessary because you needed the really intimate setup of part one to build to the epicness of part two. Uh, and you really needed to do justice to the characters and to the world, which just too much happens in the Deathly Hallows to squeeze all of that into one film. And so this one is the bombastic payoff for everything that was set up in part one and everything that's been set up in the previous seven movies. You know, it revisits the Chamber of Secrets from book two. It revisits uh, Gringotts Bank. It revisits Platform Nine and Three Quarters. All of these touchstones, all of these points of the earlier films and the earlier books to remind us of those parts of the world and remind us of the significance of those parts of the world. Uh, and then, you know, show that there is a reason that they were there, show that there's a reason uh, for these characters to revisit those things. Um, so, I, yeah, I think this movie holds up extraordinarily well uh, and is it sets the example for like big, really successful uh, endings to series, especially fantasy series that doesn't feel like fan service, right? It feels very genuine and very authentic. And yes, it is pulling from really strong source material. It's not like, um, you know, Avengers Endgame where it's like pulling a little bit from some some comics, but it's paying things off in a way that like is really satisfying for fans to see uh, but could sometimes be considered fan service. This one is like every single uh, payoff is totally genuine to the characters and totally genuine to the world. 
I'd like to talk about two of the main themes I think that come screaming out of this movie, sure. if you'll permit yeah. me. Um, the first is going to be the completion of cycles. And I think you really hit on that. So that it revisits a lot of things from the previous movies. It makes sure to show us. At one point, the camera zooms out um, right before the battle begins just to show us the Quidditch pitch burning to the ground. Yeah, Just yeah. to let us know that's where they played Quidditch. It's now on fire. Yeah, that's where the whimsy and childhood really took place in the earlier books, and now it is burning. You know, and it takes care to, I think, complete full cycles. For example, the idea that we have this whole narrative starts with parents being murdered and orphaning a child. And we have Lupin and Tonks being murdered and orphaning a child. Completes a loop that I think needs to be there. The fact that the movie ends where the first one begins with people sending their children to Hogwarts. And that's the last part. I think it ends and completes a loop. The idea that the Severus Snape reveal that he has been protecting Harry Potter this whole time, I think it ends the loop of at the core of all of these stories is some sort of mystery and or misdirection. The ultimate mystery and misdirection is what side is Snape actually on? And what does Snape say before he dies? You have your mother's eyes closing a loop that something he has never said to Harry Potter that he probably doesn't know. Everybody has told him. Right, yeah. Because Snape has had a very antagonistic relationship, closing the loop on like, by the way, yeah, you do have your mother's eyes. God, just having like a child in the room and hearing that is getting me a little emotional. A little bit, <laughs> especially because we've been having debates over who he looks like. And a couple of people have told me that he has my eyes, which just makes me want to sob. Um, but he looks he's a, he's kind of a mini Derek. And yeah, I think one of the things that JK does and that um, David Yates does and the screenwriters of this do is they close loops. So many of the Harry Potter installments have at some point a major conversation with Harry and a mentor, typically Dumbledore, but sometimes it's Lupin. This movie ends with Harry having conversations with Snape. I'm sorry, with Severus Lupin, his parents with the resurrection stone and it has Harry Potter with a conversation with Dumbledore. And these conversations feel like they close the loop. This is the last time Harry Potter is going to sit down with his mentors and have a chat about what he's going through. Because at the end of this, Harry will now be the mentor. And we see him having a mentor conversation with his youngest son in this movie, closing yet another cycle. And I think it's one of the... You mentioned about sticking the landing. It's one of the poetries of it that everything does kind of come around full circle. And we see these cycles being built throughout the whole series. And this movie brings them all to a satisfactory close and not a definitive end, but a reboot. Which brings me to the second major theme, because I do think they're linked, which is death. Death is the overriding theme in this movie. So I'll point out some textual evidence. One, Harry Potter has to interact with literal dead things at three different points. The first is the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower to find out where the diadem of Ravenclaw is. The second is in the Resurrection Stone speaking to the ghost of his parents. 
And lastly is him talking to the spirit of Dumbledore after the last killing curse. I'm sorry, second to last killing curse that Voldemort throws at Harry Potter doesn't do the job, only kills the part of Voldemort's soul and not Harry Potter. In this, we see Harry Potter working with and confronting with death in a diametrically opposed way to Voldemort. Yeah. Harry Potter accepts that death is a part of life. He accepts that when you die, there is an aspect of rebirth that comes along with it, whether that's literally in the form of a ghost, whether that's in the shades that you see in the resurrection stone or the spirit of Dumbledore coming back, telling him that this is just one part to the next phase. Harry Potter fears death as any mortal creature, but he is courageous and able to stand up to death. He recognizes, and even in Neville's speech, Neville says, what does he say? People die every day. He accepts that death is a part of life and dealing with death is a part of life and that you can carry people's memories with you and that is a form of rebirth. And it's that rousing speech that ends up giving our heroes what they need to finally fight and turn the tide and win the battle. Compared to Voldemort, who is willing to kill indiscriminately, drink unicorn's blood in order to prolong his life. Children, yeah. We see Voldemort um, kill the uh, the guy that takes over the ministry. I'm blanking on the character's name in this. Pious thickness. Yeah. yeah. So as soon as a whole crux is destroyed, a piece of Voldemort's soul, a piece of Voldemort's life, what is his natural response to do? It's to kill someone indiscriminately just for looking at him at the wrong time in the wrong place. Secondly, when he realizes Voldemort that the Elder Wand might belong to Snape, what does he do? He kills Snape so he can take possession of it, saying, you've been a good and faithful servant, Severus, but only I can live forever. And I find it interesting the manner of Snape's execution by Voldemort. He doesn't use the killing curse. He slits his throat with a you know sharp object. It happens very quickly, presumably a knife or a razor of some sort. I think he just uses his wand and casts a spell that slits his throat. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Okay, so he uses his wand. But doesn't to, use the killing curse. It's a slow, painful death. And then has and then his has snake yeah. bite him several times in order to slowly drain the life out of him in a torturous way. A man that is probably, at this point, his most most productive servant. Yeah. <laughs> as far as Voldemort knows, I mean, he's a triple agent, you know, but as far as Voldemort knows, a really, and he even says, you know, you're a really good servant. And he does this so that he can gain more power through the elder wand, which he wants to use to kill Harry. So he can rule the wizarding world and live for forever so that he can be king in perpetuity over the wizarding world dominate and destroy the non-magic users. So Voldemort's implicit fear of death and his drive for immortality is the psychic motivator for his evil, tyrannical, and racist behavior, juxtaposed to Harry Potter, who embraces and accepts that death is part of a life and is able to deal with the pain of death. And the pain of death is all over not only Harry Potter's story arc, but also this episode or this um, installment. We have the death of Tonks and Lupin. We have the death of Fred. 
We have the death of so many characters that die. We have Harry Potter looking at people that died for him, apologizing, saying, I never wanted this. I never wanted you to die for me. And they say, no, no, we've chosen this life. We live in you. This is part of life. You do have to sometimes make sacrifices and you do have to actually fight and be courageous and embrace death. And I think those are, to me, are the two themes that come screaming out of this. I Yeah, I think that's excellent. And, you know, there's... You mentioned it already, but there's no better symbol for this than the fact that Harry uh, becomes master of death by obtaining all three Deathly Hallows, and he leaves the Resurrection Stone in the Forbidden Forest and destroys the Elder Wand. The only one he keeps is his invisibility cloak, which was passed down by his father, and that he will one day pass down to his kids. Uh, you know, the only thing that he keeps is the the hallow that we talked about last week as the protective hallow, as the scabbard rather than the sword uh, Excalibur. It's the it's the one that will keep you from losing blood in battle and can be used to protect others as well as yourself. So that's why he keeps it, uh, because it's the quiet hallow. Uh, and he becomes master of death, but then decides he kind of doesn't want to be uh, master of death. You know, he wants to embrace and accept death in a way that Voldemort could never understand. And in a way that Dumbledore could never understand, you know, no other character in this really has the same kind of relationship to death that Harry does, even the incredibly noble characters. So I think that's really well put that those are the really, um, prominent themes of this one and the whole series, you know, the big themes that stick out are love, the power of love, death and the acceptance of death and the question of fate versus free will and whether we can make our own choices or whether we're bound uh, to uh, to destiny, whether we're bound to what is laid out in front of us. And I think all three of those are revisited in this, especially when Harry gets the opportunity to move on at platform nine and three quarters or at King's Cross Station with Dumbledore. He gets the opportunity to go to the afterlife but chooses to come back to his body. He makes that choice because of the power of love, because he wants to continue fighting for everyone, despite how tired he is, despite the fact that he could just move on to a peaceful afterlife and leave the, the worldly troubles behind. He makes that choice because he has conquered death now, and he makes that choice because it's possible to make a choice in this world. You know, finally, after all of the questions, after all of the, the debates of whether there's prophecy in this world or whether, you know, we have control over our destiny, Harry makes the ultimate choice to go back to life and affirms unequivocally that we have choice and that we can make those choices out of love. I mean, Dumbledore says to him, Harry, don't pity the dead, pity the living, and of all else, pity those who live without love. And I think that is like the thesis statement to Harry Potter. Yes, you're going to miss your loved ones when they pass on and you still remain here alive. But it is those that live without love that deserve the most pity because death is a natural part of life, one which we all must go through inevitably at some point and coming to accept it rather than trying to dominate and control it is the difference between the greatest hero of the wizarding world and the greatest villain of the wizarding world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we agree that it holds up and has some pretty good themes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
Let's transition into some other topics, if you shall. Yeah. There's one thing I wanted to bring up, if you'll permit me to to lead on this. Absolutely. I really wanted to talk about the castle of Hogwarts itself, both as a symbol in the movie and the historical importance of castles and how castles in particular are used as military institutions as well as homes. So a few fun things about the history of castles, and we'll relate these back to Hogwarts. So there's a palace. And what is a palace? It is a place where royalty lives. There is a fortress. What is a fortress? It is a place that is an easily defendable military installation where no royalty lives. What then is a castle? A castle is the place where royalty lives. That's also a palace, while at the same time is a fortress designed to house military and to be easily defendable. So where did castles come from? Why do they exist? And why do they exist as such a symbol in our modern um, mythic storytelling? And like so many things that we talk about, it goes back to the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in um, what was late Roman, early medieval Europe. And there was a power vacuum in all of what is now considered Western and Northern Europe. It went from a highly centralized Roman state with a legal apparatus, with a military tradition, with a literary tradition, an educational tradition, an economic tradition, to absolutely nothing, and it happened relatively quickly. Yeah, all these people who were Roman citizens for all of these years and had the Roman defense systems and believed they were part of the Roman Empire suddenly found themselves undefended and without a country, essentially. So this became the closest thing we can consider a dark age for many, many parts of uh, modern-day Europe. Indeed. And so out of this power vacuum, a Franco-Germanic tribe rose to prominence, and they're called the Carolingian, and they formed under the military leadership of Charlemagne, e.g. Charles the Great, conquered a huge, vast territory of Western and Central Europe, modern-day France, modern-day Germany, Austria, Switzerland, these places. And the Pope came and crowned him the first Holy Roman Empire and formed something called the Carolingian Dynasty. And this is really the birth of medieval Europe as we know about it, and the first really turned back towards a more orderly civilization after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, there was one problem. Charlemagne divided his empire up amongst his sons. So he didn't just give the empire to one person, he gave it to several people. That really didn't go so well. It didn't take too long for these sons to want to start taking territory from each other, and the empire, as quick as it was formed, a generation and a half later had pretty much disintegrated back into nothing. So this left a problem for people in power in local areas. How do you defend your land? How do you defend your people? How do you defend yourself? One of the answers was the building of castles and the formation of a class of nobility often referred to as castellans, those who own castles. And what would happen is a lord who had sway over a whole swath of territory would have a castle. And the castle was designed for the lord to live in it was designed for a place for all the resources of the land to come to so the Lord could then distribute it through taxation. And in the event of attack or invasion, 
because there's no central state with a standing army that could come and deploy you meant that there could be raiders, there could be fellow Castellans, it could be your own king, it could be this small unknown population from Scandinavia in ships called the Vikings could come down and decide they want to attack and raid you. So you have a problem. No central authority, lots of territory to maintain, and you're a lord. You have to protect and defend it. You are the Castellan, so you have a castle. And a castle was a fortress that was difficult, if not impossible, with the weaponry at the time to penetrate because of the large walls, the large thick stone walls, the ability for archers stones, hot oil to be deployed in defense when you were under attack. So here come the Vikings. Here come the Goths. Here come the neighboring Castellan for your territory. Everyone retreats into the castle. You hold up and you defend it. But castles became more than just military apparatuses. After all, the Castellan lived there. So your castle also became a projection of your wealth and power. So that meant that castles started getting bigger. They started to getting more ornate. You might have a chapel in your castle that might serve as a cathedral for your population. So castles became from things such as if you've ever been to England and seen the Tower of London, it's pretty utilitarian in its design. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a big white box. And designed because that's where William the Conqueror landed. And that's one of the first medieval castles built designed to protect in case the French decided they wanted to cross the uh, English Channel and invade. So you put a fortress right there that the king also got to live in. Why did the king want to live there? He was pretty curious to see if the French were going to come attack him. So he lived there himself. Over time, they became more ornate. They became more beautiful. As medieval society stopped being a bunch of desperate Castellans, vying for protection with no regional allegiance, you started seeing states emerge that would have a king at the top with the Castellans underneath. This didn't happen instantaneously. It took time. And you started seeing states emerge. So the castle started to become a place where you could project wealth. You started to adapt because you were talking to other cultures. You were visiting other lands. Society became more complex. You start to see different ways to build. Maybe some of your knights went on crusade. They brought back something from the Near East. Maybe you did a trip to North Africa, so you brought back something from Morocco. Maybe you went to a different part of France and saw this amazing Gothic style. You started building these incredible complex buttresses. So castles became an expression of both military, but also artistic and financial power. And they became these places that then hosed the chapel where the bishops and the priests would live. So they got linked with the religion. It's a place where you would go and you would see God and you would commune with the divine to receive things like communion, baptism, etc. Now, castles outlived their military usefulness. And this is very important because once artillery, cannons became a thing, You could take cannons and you could shoot down the walls of a castle and your infantry could easily go right in and you could take the castle over. But yet for hundreds of years, castles were still being built because of their cultural, artistic, and for their projection of nobility and noble strength. Now, 
why do we have castles so entrenched in our modern popular culture and our modern storytelling? In other words, of all the places for J.K. Rowling to imagine her wizarding school to be, why a castle? Why Hogwarts Castle? And I think we have to go to Disney. And we have to discuss how Disney took the projection of medieval royalty and medieval power and codified it into a mythology, a contemporary modern mythology that said the castle is a beautiful place, that those that live in there are powerful, but they are generous and that they are kind and people can go and visit and they can be transported by the castle and the architecture of the castle and the beauty and the majesty of said castle. And we see this in stories like Snow White. We see this in Sleeping Beauty. We see this in Walt Disney World and Disneyland that is called what? Magic Kingdom. And what's at the center of it? But a beautiful, ornate... Cinderella's castle. Castle. And so when we're looking at what Hogwarts represents, one, it's a school. But two, it's also an incredibly powerful place. It's a place where magic is innate It's a place that attracts ghosts. It's a place that Voldemort wants to possess. It's a place of mystery and magic. It is the embodiment of the castle history coupled with a Disney-esque style castle mythology into now the center of the wizarding world and Harry Potter's world. Yeah, and you know what's what's interesting about Hogwarts and its its particular inception is that it was built as a school. It was not built as a fortress. Like they created this place to serve as a boarding school for young wizards. However, it ends up serving the purpose of the, you know, the original castle, the military purpose. And it's been outfitted with these golems, these, uh, you know, these suits of armor that can come to life at the wave of a spell. Do your duty to our school. Hogwarts is threatened. Minerva McGonagall says, uh, as she awakens these, these creatures, possibly for the first time or the first time in a thousand years, they've been waiting to be awakened and to defend this castle. And it does have, you know, pretty interesting defenses. It's got, you know, a gorge around it in the Scottish Highlands. You have to get to it mostly by water or, um, by some other magical form of transportation. It has these bridges that can be bombed out by Neville and Seamus uh, in order to continue protecting the boundaries of Hogwarts. It's got the forbidden forest on one side. So if you need to approach it through the forbidden forest, then you have to brave giant spiders and all kinds of uh, centaurs and all other magical threats. So it certainly has all of the elements of the military defensible fortress, but it was built to educate children, uh, which is such an interesting, you know, reflection on the wizarding world. This idea that there's this whimsy to one aspect, but then on the other side, there is an incredible darkness, and there is this threat. Uh, you know, every year at Hogwarts, students die. You know, this is a really threatening and hostile world. Uh, so the 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 magic and the the mystery and the whimsy lives again side by side with the darkness. Yeah, and one of the most important things about a castle is that you can defend it when you have inferior numbers. So you have a castle, let's say, in Central Europe, and here come a bunch of Huns, and these Huns want to take your land, and they want to take you, and they want to kill you. You go into the castle that probably has 
places around it, such as water and forest terrain not easy to cross, that limits the point of attack. In Hogwarts, in this battle, we see two points of attack that they can have based upon the two bridges. And you can have inferior numbers, but still defend it. The very uh, as the castle aspect of Hogwarts is why Minerva and the Order of the Phoenix have a chance against Voldemort's superior numbers. If they weren't in a castle, they wouldn't be able to defend it. And it's, it's castleness that allows them the chance to hold on until the tide is turned when Harry Potter resurrects himself yet again from the killing curse and Voldemort starts to flee and the final battle happens where our heroes are victorious. Yeah, and who are the forces of Hogwarts, right? We got a handful of staff. This is a really small staff at Hogwarts. There's one teacher for each subject uh, and then a bunch of kids and a few members of the Order of the Phoenix. So mostly untested 17-year-old wizards and then a handful of really accomplished wizards versus an army of Voldemort's supporters who are all really skilled at the dark arts, plus a whole bunch of magical creatures like giants and acromantula that they have fighting for them. So they absolutely need this fortress in order to give them that edge. But then when we see these kind of one-on-one hand-to-hand combat matchups, we also see that there's this reminder that being like really brave and really pure of heart will, uh, will prevail at the end of the day, like the matchup between... Molly Weasley and Bellatrix Lestrange, like we've only seen Molly Weasley perform mostly domestic magic in the seven films prior. But when her daughter is threatened, we get the magnificent line, not my daughter, you bitch. And we see her pull out the most like vicious spell ever to destroy one of the deeply most disturbed and evil characters in the entire story, who is an incredibly skilled user of the dark arts. So again, we have this triumph of good over evil, because if you can muster that power of love from deep within you, that's going to be stronger than uh, whatever is powering someone like Bellatrix. It's not the numbers of followers, but the quality of one's convictions that determine success. Who said that? I think I paraphrased that. (laughs) I did. I did. It's a great (laughs) line. Yeah, it is a really great line. I want to thank you for that historical context and for thinking about Hogwarts in a different way. Again, you know, that scene of the Quidditch pitch burning is such a telling moment. This place that was created for childhood mystery and magic becomes, uh, you know, a battleground. And we watch Hogwarts really be destroyed the symbol of everything that the Harry Potter world has been, the symbol of Harry's home is destroyed right in front of our eyes. And that's a really difficult thing to watch, but it reminds us of what's most important, the people inside, uh, the people being educated, and they are the ones who, who triumph, even though we lose a lot of really special, important people. I want to um, segue uh, real quick because there is uh, you know, a character in this story who goes through a really unexpected change, a really unexpected arc, and whose uh, whose legacy, I think, is still hotly debated, and I think we should get into the questions, uh, and that's Severus Snape. You mentioned in the recap, we learn about his, uh, his history, his memories, and the fact that he loved Lily Potter, he loved Harry's mother deeply, uh, and it was an unrequited love, 
and that his love for her was what caused him to switch sides and start supporting Dumbledore and start protecting Harry Potter. Um, but there is so much nuance to who Snape is. So my question for you and something I'd like to discuss is, uh, is Snape redeemed at the end of this story? Oh man. So Snape, he has been working with Dumbledore the whole time, right? And he's been trying to protect Harry Potter. We learn he comes to care about Harry Potter and still at the same time, he does some terrible, terrible things. He kills Dumbledore for one, though Dumbledore asks him to, he still kills him. Um, he's terrible to Harry Potter. He is actually, I would say, borderline, if not full-on abusive yeah. towards Harry Potter. Yeah. And Snape is a cruel, cold-hearted human being. Now, learning that he's cruel and cold-hearted because he was bullied and he watched the woman he loved, the young young woman he loved, marry the person who bullied him, does apply a context to that where we say, okay, we understand. I can empathize with how you became so cruel, though cruel nonetheless you are. Um, Harry Potter calls him the bravest man he ever knew. I think it's clear to me that JK and the film team want to redeem Severus. They want to show that what he has done is in a context. They want us to empathize with that context. And the fact that Harry's second son is named Albus Severus Potter tells us that Harry Potter himself has chosen to forgive and redeem Snape. In fact, has come to admire Snape. So I think what the text is telling us is, yes, he has been redeemed. I just don't know if I personally agree. Because to me, a child abuser is a child abuser. And whatever you went through that made you into a cruel and cold-hearted teacher is kind of irrelevant to me because Harry Potter didn't deserve to be abused by Severus. And Severus does abuse him. And I don't know if the fact that he was working for Dumbledore this whole time, I don't know what the fact that he is very much a tragic hero means that he can be viewed just as a hero. You know, does Macbeth get redeemed when he realizes what he did was wrong? I don't know. I don't think so. No. <laughs> Severus Snape helps Dumbledore, I'm sorry, helps Voldemort come to power. He comes to believe in the blood purity narrative. He comes to believe that the wizarding world should be dominated and controlled by a dictator who suppresses marginalized peoples, including muggle-borns and muggles, elves, goblins, you name it. And the only reason he switches sides and helps Dumbledore is because he fears for Lily's life. Not that he necessarily believes that Voldemort was wrong. Yeah, he never truly renounces Voldemort's ideology. And we never see him. And that ideology is terrible. Now, I'm glad he switches sides. And I do think there is something tragically heroic about the character. And I do think uh, JK wants us to feel like he's redeemed. I just don't know. It's like, hey, it's great that you adopted the Doe Patronus. And it's awesome that you gave the sort of Gryffindor to Harry. 
and I'm glad that you've been protecting him this whole time. But dude, you've done some messed up things. I think you're right on the money. I tend to agree with you on all of this, especially in the sense that, you know, we are given an explicit um, permission structure to redeem Snape through the text, through Harry himself, especially. Uh, and that is that's telling us, you know, what we're supposed to think. But it does benefit from tons of extra scrutiny. And I think over the years, as we've all gained some distance from the novels and from the movies, we've been able to say, okay, no, we can't necessarily redeem this character just because he was doing good work behind the scenes. Because in front of the scenes, he was doing really, really bad work that was damaging to a lot of kids, not just Harry. Like he bullied Neville, he bullied Ron, he bullied Hermione. Um, and there is certainly a marked difference between his cruelty in the movies versus the books. I think there are some things that are left out of the movies um, that, that give him, let him off the hook a little bit. And you've also got the obscenely charismatic performance of Alan Rickman, who with just a slight side eye gives you so much depth uh, through so much subtlety. So I think, you know, there's definitely a difference between those two portrayals, but uh, again, I think that that this relationship, this character has benefited from uh, some time and some distance from the, the material so that we can all shed a little bit more of a critical eye and say, no, we can't just forgive him. You know, he's been he's been compared frequently to Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And I think that's a really apt comparison. They're both these dark, mysterious, tragic heroes who are the like big mysterious force in their uh in their story and you want to know them they're magnetic you're curious about them you want to know why they are the way they are but they're violent and cruel and they're violent and cruel because of a doomed love from childhood and they take out that doomed love and the uh the pain of that doomed love on everyone around them especially the next generation and to watch you know, a, an adult character take out their childhood trauma on the next generation is really disturbing. And the legacy, I think, of both Heathcliff and Snape are similar because they're such magnetic characters. Uh, they they have been somewhat redeemed in readers' and viewers' eyes because people are drawn to them. And because there is this wild romance at the heart of what motivates them, we want to redeem them because they love, because they love deeply. Um, Wuthering Heights, however, does not give us a template, does not give us a permission structure to redeem Heathcliff. We just naturally kind of want to redeem Heathcliff. It doesn't tell us how we're supposed to feel about him in the way that Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows tells us how we're supposed to feel about him. So I think that was apt that you pointed that out, that we get this explicit, you know, uh, Harry forgiving Snape, but we we actually need to look a lot closer. And I think, and I think for part of the reason is, here we are, we're recording this, um, I think it's January 15th, I forget the date, I think it's the 17th. 17th. We're a few days away from Donald Trump and the end of his presidency and the epic failures and downfalls of his presidency and the loss of power of the Republican Party completely on a federal level as a result to Donald Trump's corruptions, ineptitudes, and stupidity. And I think of how groups such as QAnon, Proud Boys, white supremacist neo-Nazis are targeting 
American elected officials for execution and murder in the name of Trump so they can install their leader as a white ethnostate dictator. And I think to myself, you know, if there's a Severus Snape by Donald Trump, you're not redeemed. You know, and if if you helped give rise to Voldemort, maybe he did enough to not go to Azkaban. But the forces that exist in the wizarding community that allow it to be taken advantage of by a racist wizard supremacy ideology are eerily prescient to what's happening in America right now and the cause of Trumpism and the violent response to Trumpism losing power and Donald Trump himself losing power, that if you're a double agent secretly doing good in the Trump administration, I'm sorry, you didn't do enough. You know, and y- y- you need to, at some point, publicly condemn these ideologies in order to snuff them out, in order to get them out of the body politic and to remove them from society and uh, as and call them out for the danger that they are. And if you were part of a regime that the racist, worst, classist human beings possible are chanting your name and are trying to violently overthrow uh, everyone else in power, and you're like, well, you know, but I did actually do some good things next to that. And maybe this is me putting where I'm at, reflecting on Americans' politics into Harry Potter, and I recognize the text is not saying that. The text is saying Snape should be redeemed, we should be redeemed with him. And truly, I'm not saying this is anti-Snape. One of the best characters... Ever. Probably my favorite character in the books. Not because I think he's ultimately all good or all bad, but I think that he is such an interesting character to watch develop and because... Uh, because there's so much complexity and nuance and because you you have to have these conversations about whether he's redeemed or not. It's why Darth Vader is my favorite character in Star Wars. Yeah. And similar, Darth Vader. Good job. Glad you saved Luke. Glad you killed the Emperor. You blew up Alderaan, dude. Yeah, you're still a genocidal maniac. You know, you killed all of your friends. Yeah. You know, like, in, in your pursuit of power. You know, so... And at, at the same time, there's something to be said about the nuance and for those that think Snape is redeemed, um, you know, I'm not trying to to sway you. Like, react the way you need to react to this text and reflect on it. But I can't help but think of the dark forces present in the American Republic relating those to what we see in Voldemort and the Wizarding World's Republic and saying that there is a dark lesson there that we should take away. And it's like, you know, we really can't allow people that flirt with help out and tease white supremacy on the pursuit of their own power or wizarding supremacy for that matter and allow them to, you know, get a pass, you know, when the dust settles and it's like, okay, well, they're not in power anymore. So let's give them a pass. And I'm like, I don't think I'm there yet. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. Absolutely. I So we're kind of ramping up here and we've been really pressing our luck. Arthur has been asleep for this Almost this whole time. It's been very good, yeah. So let's let's get this to a speedy conclusion. A few things I just want to ask. Do you have any standout scenes, whether from this movie or the entire franchise, that you'd like to call out that mean something to you? 
Okay, so from the movies, I think the the standout scene that always gets me every single time, and I think I mentioned this in our Half Blood episode, is the um, the scene between Harry and Slughorn at Hagrid's hut when Harry is helping to extract the memory, uh, and we have the story about Francis the fish uh, and how. Lily Potter was this beautiful witch who was able to produce extraordinary magic and was able to inspire great love uh, and great courage in so many people around her. And she is a force who, while she is not alive at all in this series, uh, is is symbolically alive in every single line. She lives through Harry uh, and she lives through the relationships with all the characters. As much as Harry looks like his father, it's his mother's kindness. It's his mother's uh, love. It's his mother's ability to see the best in people that uh, helps to form the kind of person that he is, even though he never knew her. And then in this installment, when Lily Potter appears uh, as the resurrection stone is used while there are so many of Harry's other mentors, ones that he's actually spent time with in life around him. The first person that he goes to is his mother. She puts his, she puts her hand out and he goes to her and she tells him how brave that her son has been, uh, how strong he has been. And that's, that was the last thing that she bid him to do was to be brave and be strong because mama and dada love you. Uh, so that's what I want to call out. I, I became a mother two weeks ago today. Um, and <laughs> there's our son. <laughs> um, yeah. And to, to see, you know, strong examples of mothers, um, throughout storytelling is something that I look to as an example. And if my kid grows up half as brave and strong as Harry Potter, I will be uh, extremely impressed. <laughs> yeah. So although the Deathly Hallows part two is not, I don't think is the best of the Harry Potter movies. It does have without a doubt, one of my all time favorite scenes yeah. in all cinema. And I say that with no hyperbole. And when Harry confronts Snape in the great hall and McGonagall and Snape duel and the way that Snape doesn't ever attack the way McGonagall screams coward as he flees and lights up and the way that Voldemort speaks and calls out Harry Potter and demands that he gets sacrificed, the way the tensions broke when the carekeeper comes in. Oh, yeah, when Filch comes in. Students out of bed. And then ultimately leading to McGonagall going out there and saying his name is Voldemort. He's going to come and try to kill you. You might as well use his name. And then saying, Pure totem locomotor. And when the gargoyle golem, not gargoyle, the golem drops. And the first time we hear the battle theme, that music, and McGonagall calls out that Hogwarts is threatened to do their duty to the school. And the way she's so happy, like... I got to actually use this spell. So the way that she is actually enjoying this moment is so Gryffindor. She totally comes into herself in this. It's so Derek. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that entire sequence up into that moment. And when you see those golems marching and every time that part of the movie happens, I get goosebumps. It is one of my all time hundred percent 
favorite, favorite, favorite cinematic moments of all movies. And every time I watch it, I love it. And it's great because McGonagall has been so straight laced this entire time. We know she's the head of Gryffindor house. So she's brave. Uh, We know she's part of the order of the Phoenix, but we don't know what she's really capable of. We haven't seen it because she's been such a, you know, uppity deputy headmistress. And finally she shows us what she's made of. And she shows us why she's named after the Roman goddess of war. Like she shows us exactly why she's Athena incarnate. So I, I love that. I want to call out one last thing, um, a, a favorite from this uh, from this installment, and it's something that's not in the book, um, but becomes one of I think the best lines ever spoken in the Harry Potter series. And that's when we're at King's Cross with Harry and Dumbledore, uh, and Dumbledore says, "Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic." capable of both inflicting harm and remedying it. Uh, words are our most inexhaustible source of magic. Something I just love to reflect on uh, as someone who makes a podcast where we use our words all the time, as someone who loves literature, as someone who loves to write. Uh, and while we may not live in the magical world that Harry Potter does, Uh, we have access to something that is just as powerful as the swish and flick of a wand. And that's language, that's communication, that's words. Uh, We're able to make magic with them. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.